Hey, James. What's up, Tim? We watched some Star Trek Voyager for the podcast today, where an AI smart WMD bomb was discovered and the crew needed to convince it to abandon its mission to destroy another planet. While there was a lot of hologram doctor in this episode, I found it strange that no one loved my script notes to have a red shirt crew member try to ride the nuclear bomb away to safety. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living. I'm joined today in the podcast studio over Zoom with my co-host Gabe. Gabe, welcome back. Hey Tim, good to be back. And also excited to announce, uh, we have a special guest today, James Sheehan, a consultant working on transatlantic cooperation and public diplomacy. James, welcome. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Gabe. Really happy to be on the show. So in order to keep Gabe on as a co-host, I apparently am uh, contractually obligated to do a certain number of episodes covering Star Trek, uh, the movies, the TV show. Uh, We've done five thus far, but uh, fortunately, the Star Trek canon apparently has a lot of nuclear weapon episodes, uh, so they're heavily intertwined, and we have enough content here to cover, right? And the the quota was coming up, so you knew you needed to get one (laughs) in, so yeah. Otherwise, I leave. That's my... Some some co-hosts ask for like a car and stuff like that. I'm easy. I just need some Star Trek. And James, uh, welcome because uh, you are also a big uh, Star Trek fan as well. You want to talk a little bit about kind of what part of the Star Trek lore? Because you can pick and choose which ones you're you're into. What is your uh, go-to? Yeah, um, I probably have my most experience with what we're going to discuss tonight, which is Star Trek Voyager. Um, I started watching the show in 1995 when it came on the air. I remember being a big Wednesday night show. I think it came on at eight or nine o'clock on UPN on UPN. Yeah. I was in, I was in Boy Scouts at the time, which is a a deep, deep nerd cut. But I remember (laughs) I would come home from my Wednesday night Boy Scout meetings, right, right. As it was coming on, on TV, watch it live every Wednesday with my dad and with my sister. So it was, I have really good memories of of Voyager in particular, because it was like a lot of, a lot of good family time. It was like something we all watched together. So, uh, I don't, I don't know if families do that anymore, if they like watch shows on, on actual TV together or kids just stare at their iPads and their parents, they're off doing something else. But yeah, Voyager is, is where most of my experience with Star Trek comes from. I watched Next Generation syndication. I was never a big Deep Space Nine head, but I know that that's got its, got its following. I mean, the films are, the films are, are, are great classics. So yeah, that's, that's sort of my, my experience with, with the Trek. Nice. Well, Gabe recommended we cover this particular episode of Star Trek Voyager. It's called Warhead. So, of course, I was interested. I didn't. Gabe was like, sent me the what is it? Um, Mission Alpha. Memory, memory Alpha. Memory Alpha page, and I'm like, you know what? It's it, the title is called Warhead. I'm gonna watch it. Let's do an episode on it. Well, it's so funny because I've been th- I was thinking about Star Trek to do, and th- this came to me. This is a, a little al- advertisement here for alcohol, which makes life better. <laughs> Uh, I was out like drinking, I, we were, I was like celebrating my new job with a buddy and I was a little tipsy coming back in an Uber and we were crossing 14th street bridge in Washington. And this is like, right as all the Ukraine stuff is happening and somewhere in my beer addled mind, I just had this thought of like, huh, what if like 
nuclear weapons came here, but they like knew they knew what their mission was and they like, how would they feel about coming here? This is, these are the things I think about now that I do this podcast. Uh, and then I was like, I hadn't thought about it in so long. I'm like, oh my God, there's a Voyager episode about this. We should do it. And so thank you, alcohol, for, for making this episode a reality. Well, you, whatever state of mind you were in, it pointed you towards season five, episode 25, that first aired in May 1999. This was a bottle episode that was shot with like a limited budget, limited cast, but it aims for, I would say, some pretty ambitious plots. It is, uh, it's it's definitely my first Voyager episode. I watched a lot of Next Gen. That was kind of my, my go-to show. Uh, I think it aligned well uh, when I was a, a kid. I think it, I mean, at least I watched it on, on syndication or something, but um, I didn't ever, I've never seen this one before. Uh, I just looked to see who was involved with it. Um, the director for this uh, also did a bunch of 1990s shows like Buffy, Angel, Charmed, Twilight Zone uh, kind of remake stuff, Hercules, Dark Angel, basically anything on in the 90s. One thing I will note is that the executive director and I think a writer for this, Brandon Braga, also did some 24, some Orville, uh, Star Trek Generations, and another episode that we've covered before on the podcast uh, over the movie Star Trek First Contact. Brandon Braga, he was like big in all the, like all the, I don't know if he started on Next Generation or, or Deep Space Nine, but I know he was like the big driver of a lot of those those Star Trek shows in the 90s. And- what is Voyager? If someone's listening to this and is like me and has never seen Voyager, what is the sub- quick synopsis of this? Where like, where does this take place in the timeline for the show and maybe some of the people who, uh, like some of the characters and actors that kind of play in this? Yeah, I mean, Voyager, I think one of the interesting things about the the, the Star Trek canonical timeline is that the, the three the three big TV shows from the 90s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s all take place within like 16 years of each other hmm. within this whole 300, 400, 500 year timeline, depending on where you're, you're placing things, um, because they do a lot of time travel in Star Trek <laughs> for a show that is not a time travel show. Uh, so, I mean, they, they, go, they go way far back. But um, this is taking place, I believe, in 2370s, I think is the, the general... Uh, time frame. So, you know, about 350 years in the future from from where we are now. But this is the latest chronologically after Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. So this is, I think the new Picard show is, is later than this, but this is the uh, the latest in that that chunk of shows that we all loved in the 80s, 80s and 90s. So uh, Voyager is, is, is trying to get back to Earth after being kind of on the far edge of the, I want to say Alpha Quadrant, but I can't remember. <laughs> or the, Delta, Qua- the Delta Quadrant. Delta Quadrant, okay. Delta, like the uh, Delta Flyer. <laughs> <laughs> so they're at the, I think that's like the far edge of the Milky Way or something like that. And they're trying to get back to Earth. And, and they're, they're led by Captain Catherine Janeway, um, who is the, the, the captain of the ship played by Kate Mulgrew. They do a lot of the, you know, the, the, the tropes, I guess, from other, other types of uh, other, other Star Trek episodes or, or, or series. Like there's no data, but they have a, a doctor who I will play critically in this this discussion i think but I'll, I'll i'll throw it over to gabe here to fill in any gaps but that's that's yeah. sort of the yeah the, the real concept i think with voyager was a lot of the like alien races that you would see on the shows you know next generation and deep space nine they were getting really familiar plot lines were getting the same i think the idea was they were going to throw voyager onto the other side of the galaxy there's this like mishap in the first episode that throws it there and then they spend the whole series coming back home the idea was they'd, they'd be able to play with like new aliens and new ideas, new concepts. Some of them kind of fizzled out at the beginning. Um, like there was supposed to be this conflict aboard the ship between like a rebel crew that like got stranded out there. 
that never really went anywhere but i think that was kind of the appeal for me that there was some like really different stuff yeah. and it introduces some new stuff into the canon so yeah that was the kind of the voyager vibe one thing i'm curious before we jump into the the podcast uh, nuke stuff here is is the travel time in star trek with warp drives and all of that it, it's actually a pretty long time to get from one side of the milky way back back to earth yeah i forget hard to place all this i forget in the beginning they talk i don't know james if you remember in the beginning of the series they like talk about how long it'll take but of course, conveniently enough, it fits into seven seasons of television because they <laughs> they every now and then they hit a wormhole or they like hitch yeah. a ride on like a board cube or something. And so, yeah, it's a multi-year, multi-year journey. And there are throughout the series, there are, I would say, critical decisions where they have to, you know, make a make a choice like this is going to add two years to our time mm. out here. Should we go invest? You know, so th- there's always those trade-offs I think they're making between, you know, carrying out the the prime directive directive and exploring, but also this is a journey to get, to get back home. Um, I always like that aspect of it too, is that, you know, they're, it, it feels like they're in a, a little more of a trickier situation than perhaps next generation or deep space nine, because they are actually out there in the wilderness trying to, trying to get back. Well, it's, it's just very reassuring that even in a future far from ours and far to the other side of the Milky Way galaxy, that nuclear weapons still find their way uh, into everyone's daily life. Cause this episode is, is no exception to what we cover on the podcast. There is a, Essentially, a situation where a nuclear bomb is is talking, thinks it's alive, uh, it has a mission, we don't really know what it is to start, but it's some sort of weapon of mass destruction uh, causing some havoc in our whole debate here that we'll get into is kind of what responsibility does the bomb have uh, if it has sentience to finish its mission, but also knowing that it will kill people. The crew, who's, you know, moral and uh, upstanding and doesn't want to kill if something is actually sentient, but knows that this thing is meant uh, and was created to destroy. Based on that, I've got two questions that I want to cover today. Uh, One is, since this episode was made in the late 1990s and kind of between the end of the Cold War and before 9-11, it really is one of those 90s shows that fits very perfectly in this time period between when everyone was concerned about, you know, global thermonuclear war and those types of Cold War anxieties and then the new types of non-state type uh, weapon of mass destruction attacks that we had uh, starting in 9-11. So kind of how does this episode fit within that? Yeah, and also how bad is the CGI for late (laughs) 90s TV? All right, that's question 1B. Uh, The second question I have here is, the bomb in this episode has its own thoughts and feelings on being a WMD on a mission. Kind of what can we draw from that in thinking about nuclear deterrence and nuclear dangers in our timeline and this side of the galaxy? I will kick things off now. Spoiler alert, if you uh, haven't watched this show from the 90s and want to... We're going to spoil quite a bit of it uh, from this episode, uh, so check it out. Uh, it's I think I had to buy it on Amazon Prime, the episode. I don't know, James or Gabe, is it probably on Paramount Plus or any yeah, other places that we're at these days? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've been binging uh, Discovery and haven't started Picard yet, but yeah, I got my Paramount. They hooked me in. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I'm probably going to borrow your account, so it's all going to work out fine. James, why don't you start us off? Uh, how does this episode you know, get started? The, the crew uh, of Voyager is in a little bit of a different different setup than normal. So Ensign Kim um, is on bridge duty. He's really excited about that. Uh, he's framed as, as a, a go-getter, a careerist, uh, someone who's looking to rise through the Star Trek ranks. So he's he's been assigned uh, bridge duty for the overnight shift so that uh, supposedly Captain Janeway can, can get some R&R or something like that. Four nights in a row. Right, right. Um, and I did have a, I, I don't want to be too tangential here, but I, I didn't know if, you know, because there's the red shirts, the yellow shirts, and the the green shirts and i guess nc kim is eligible for a command position despite being a yellow shirt operations person um i don't know how that works in starfleet but mm-hmm. i guess there's some flexibility in the um command structure and how you 
rise through the ranks. But um, I, I thought that was interesting since he is more of an, an ops guy. With that said, they get a distress beacon on a planet with no signs of life. The, the doctor uh, joins them on this mission to the planet's surface. It's like a real rocky desert looking thing it's it's an incredibly cheesy set um <laughs> it's like it's it's, a, it's about like 20 by 20 feet yeah it looks like they i mean it just screams like some i think it's the stage. paramount sand stage yeah 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 um so they go down to the, the surface they find this long sort of well one meter long mechanical thing kind of like sort of in a rock embedded into a rock um it totally doesn't look like a bomb, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, the doctor begins sort of interacting with it in like machine language. Oh, he's speaking English, but it's... oh, we should we should talk about the doctor. So he's a hologram, right? Yes, he's, he's a, a hologram. hologram. He's yeah. an AI. He's like data, but you know, uh, you know, with photons. I'm Voyager's emergency medical hologram, a projection of light and force fields guided by an optronic computer program. Yeah, I think he describes himself as like an array of light and force fields um, sort of driven by an AI. So he can, he's a hologram, but there are, there's technology in this world where he can exist in the, you know, he can physically exist in outside of the the, the um, sick bay on the ship, or he can be out in the world basically because of some, some piece of technology that they explain in an early episode that I can't remember. <laughs> and I'll, and I'll say, I love um, this actor a lot. Um what is it? Ricardo, uh, Robert, Robert, Robert Ricardo. Robert Ricardo. I love this guy. He is the plays the coach in Wonder Years, which is my probably favorite sh- television show at, at, at all growing up completely. But he also was in another episode we covered on the podcast. He was the a theater owner in the movie Matinee with John Goodman. It's oh. such a good movie, and he plays that role perfectly. So he's in he's in he's in the Nuke world. Uh, but so this doctor, what is he? He starts talking to this little not not a bomb thing. Yeah. So I guess before that, Ensign Kim scans it and he sees that it has uh, bio neural circuitry. Ooh. So it's it's some some technology that's a mix of you know uh, perhaps some organic life form, but also mixed with some kind of circuitry. I, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 made up. Um, so it it is whatever we want to believe it is. I guess. But this is the source of the distress call. What is it? I don't know. Paratronic shielding, a dense energy matrix, bioneural circuitry. Bioneural? That's that's unique. The doctor starts engaging with it. They talk about whether or not it's it's AI, whether they need to help it, whether they should bring it back to the ship. They don't really know what's what what it is uh, at this point. They they have this like debate on the planet, and the doctor is like very sympathetic because he finds this other AI life form. He's like, well, it's suffering. We need to bring mm-hmm. it back. And Ensign right. Kim, who, you know, he's young, pretty green. He's like, oh, we should be careful about this. I, you know, but he's in command of the mission and actually gets talked into by the doctor bringing it back. Um, and it's not until they get back on the ship where I guess there was a, the, the weapon, the AI talks about its, its partner and Captain Janeway and Seven of Nine figure out that the partner crashed on another planet and left a pretty big crater <laughs> That had radioactive debris, Hello. so we know we know what's up then. Uh, I love the the scene on the planet though, because at one point they say that the bomb is scared that it wants to know where its arms and legs are and like can't see anything, but it's like freaking out. And I thought that was a pretty interesting idea of AI having consciousness and but not having you know the right arms and legs attached to it. It's not war forged in any particular way. Oh. 
Back off, this thing could be dangerous. No, wait. It's speaking to us. Speaking? In duotronic algorithms. It says it's injured. It needs our help. It's asking why it can't see or feel its arms and legs. It's terrifying. They bring it on the, the ship, but it doesn't know its mission. It doesn't know what it is. What happens once we learn what it is? Like, wh what is it? Yeah, so we find out that this is actually uh, a weapon of mass destruction. It spans a radius of 200 kilometers. Heavy concentrations of radiogenic decay in the crater walls and the fracture gradients are consistent with a highly focused explosion. Evidently, we've discovered its function. A weapon of mass destruction. They decide that they're going to go shut the weapon down, that they can't really allow this weapon to like continue to exist on their ship without endangering the whole crew. The idea is that they're going to put the AI into, or they're going to put the AI that's in this bomb into another hologram, kind of like the doctor, so it can kind of exist and survive. And the doctor and the bomb are talking back and forth. It's a real like C3PO R2D2 thing. Where yeah, they got some rapport. Yep. And it, one's beeping and the other one's speaking back. And they're like, well, we're going to have to shut you down for a little bit to, to transfer your consciousness. And the thing goes nuts. And it's like, no, can't allow that to happen. And of course, the weapon like uh, traps in, they're in sick bay. Um, it traps uh, Kim and uh, Bolana Torres, who's the half Klingon. So, very feisty uh, for those who, who don't know Star Trek stuff. Uh, chief engineer, um, they're trying to do this procedure, so they trap. They're trapped in sick bay. The bomb like walls sick bay off, doesn't allow the ship access. And then guess what? The the doctor, the holographic doctor, becomes possessed by this AI. So now instead of just beeping to the camera, now uh, the, Robert Picardo is now playing a character that is the actual bomb itself which actually starts to get quite interesting because now the bomb can talk and interact with the crew you shouldn't have done that i know you've gotten a little attached to this thing but you I'm lied not... what are you talking about you said you were trying to transfer my neural patterns but you were really trying to shut me down you're the artificial intelligence yeah, and it's it's funny. It's it's no longer a series five long range tactical armor unit type of highly advanced antimatter torpedo. He's a world class, you know, actor, uh, and he this guy plays the hell out of a bomb. I've never seen a bomb played with such gusto. Uh, I was very very impressed by this, and it's funny because before they, you know, they oh we're gonna put you in a holographic body, and it's like Warhead's like, well, what will I will I look nice? You know, what am I gonna look like? And uh, I think it's funny at one point. It's, yeah, he's like, oh no, you'll be very, you'll very, you'll be very handsome, and he starts complimenting yeah. the doctor. Compliments him on the warhead package, and it's like, oh yeah, you're very sleek, you're very nice. Uh, so kind of a, a f interesting little take on the bomb thing. You, yeah, you, you Southern California Hollywood people. That's all you care yeah, about. Yeah, the bomb is quite vain, <laughs> as it turns out. <laughs> so now we've got a handsome hologram, really pissed off uh, and vain bomb. And once it learns as well that it's actually a weapon of mass destruction, I'll give it this, it wants to complete its mission. The only thing I want to accomplish is the destruction of my target. What is your target? A military installation on Selenia Prime, grid 11, vector 9341. Tell me about it. Who's the enemy? 
A ruthless, violent race that's threatening to destroy my people. What else do you know about them? What's their planet like? Are there forests? Wildlife? Schools for the children of this violent race? I'm not programmed with superfluous data. Well, lucky for you. You're aboard Voyager now, and you have access to our scanners. Why don't we take a closer look at your target? A military installation, as I told you. But it's manned by soldiers who are going to suffer because of you. Remember when you were suffering, blind and paralyzed? Do you really want to make others go through that? I have a duty to protect my people. I will not betray them. Now get out before I'm forced to harm you! Uh, and it said at one point, too, that it is a uh, Droda, uh, was like who created the bomb. Droda, Selena Prime, are these ever things that pop up previously in any Star Trek stuff, or is this all brand new stuff? To me, this was brand new. I don't, I don't remember these popping up in, in previous episodes. These are not um, well-known civilizations, I'd say. Maybe, maybe Gabe has a different, different read, but these were, these were new to no, me. No, not one of the big ones. There's some in Voyagers, because the idea is they're always like moving away, so you don't get to meet. The, but like, there's some. But yeah, I hadn't heard about these. So, but in any case, we just know that there's like this big deal about how like they're under attack from a, a savage he keeps saying that you know we're under attack from a brutal savage you know horrendous people this kind of thing so mm -hmm. it's yeah you get a little bit of the the propaganda there but you know the bomb it's never met any of these people but it's been told that these people are terrible and he decides right to rearm the device and threatens to blow up the ship unless the ship because i guess the, the warhead can't fly anymore so they say all right Bring Voyager, it's now my ship, go to my target, and uh, drop me down, and I'll take care of business. Yeah, but this is not good, right? Because Voyager's got this whole, like, the Federation, I guess, has got this whole Prime Directive deal. So, what does that mean in this context? It means they can't interfere. It's interesting they reference the Prime Directive here, and not just, you know, basic decency of not delivering a, <laughs> a, yeah, <I> know. <laughs> a, a nuclear payload to a... <laughs> I'd like to help you, but I, I, I yeah, don't want my performance I don't, I don't review. Wanna... Yeah, I don't want to go kill uh, 20 million people, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, but the interest, I mean, there's this interesting uh, game theory thing that happens now where Janeway is like talking to the bomb, Captain Janeway, and she's like, well, he, he, his card to play is, well, I'm going to blow up the ship if you don't do this. And she's like, well, if you blow up the ship, you're not going to get to your target. You won't fulfill your mission. So they're stuck in this kind of uh, little cat and mouse thing. And he, you know, the, the weapon, I guess, you know, makes some credible threats. Janeway decides that she's going to start proceeding to the target just to keep him calm. But it's clear they're not going to be complicit in the, the murder of, like, a civilization. She says they need to find a way to outsmart a smart bomb, which I thought was a, that's some good writing. That's some good writing right there. Assemble the staff. We're going to find a way to outsmart a smart bomb. You know, they're trying to figure out what to do. But apparently one of the crew members, uh, is his name Neelix? Neelix. Yeah, Neelix, who seems to be uh, kind of a jack-of-all-trades, like a utility player on the crew. Like He's like the, the I, I guess, like quartermaster of the ship, I, I guess, would be, you know, at least in the food and beverage department. Um, <laughs> there's uh, there's an interesting exchange in the beginning of the of the um, the opening scene, I think, is with with Neelix and Lieutenant uh, Price, I believe. Tom Paris. And apparently Tom Paris is broke or like doesn't <laughs> doesn't have any money, but also I, I'm pretty sure there is no money in Star Trek, but he like needs a bottle well, of think, wine. For his yeah, I think they're, they're like rationing supplies because they're like, oh. you know, on this trip home. 
And I guess Tom Paris has run through all his rations, but he's got a hot date with Juana Torres and he can't show up empty hand or else she'll like cling on and destroy him or whatever. <laughs> so he gets like the he gets Neelix to replicate him like a Chateau Margot 1957 or something like that. <laughs> Just some absurd bottle of, of red wine. Um, which I thought was pretty funny that they're still like, I don't know, they're still drinking like 19 wine from 1957 through the, the beauty of replication in 2371. They should be drinking space wine. <laughs> That's right. And isn't that what Picard eventually does uh, when he retires? He runs a vineyard, or am I just not? Did I see that trailer right? Yeah, that's his his family business. That's their that's their main squeeze. They're the they're the wine. They have a wine thing, Chateau Picard. And they're doing okay, even in the world of replicators. They're doing okay. There seems to be this like weird parallel, like market for like real stuff. The replicators, you know, just uh, manufacture food, any food you want out of molecules. But there seem to be like in this world, in this utopian world of like leisure and pursuits, people can, you know, still go make stuff by hand. Hmm. I guess it's kind of like people buying like a handmade watch nowadays kind of thing. Yeah. Makes sense. Right. Makes sense. Well, uh, in this mar- this weird market of trading things, uh, Neelix seems to be pretty good at it because he has interacted previously with some sort of a trader who provided him with some technology that's actually pretty similar to this bio-neural circuitry. So they're like, maybe this guy knows what to do about the bomb. So they call him over. um, You know, we'll meet him a little bit later. There's some really good scenes with uh, Ensign Kim and the crew uh, in with the bomb, with the the anthropomorphic version of the bomb. Uh, And he's trying to, like, outsmart him. He, He says, you know, hey, look, uh, you know, you're, he's trying to basically try to guilt the bomb, uh, and say like, look, the doctor, he was real to us. You're real. You can make your own choices. You don't have to follow through with this mission. He's trying to guilt him, uh, into, into giving up, but the bomb is not really be able to be convinced. But then there's some really good, you know, back and forth where he says, well, you don't know your mission. You never knew who these people were. We have this computer here. It's connected to the space internet. So why don't you search things up? And and see who these people are on Selena Prime. And are, is this a man station? Are there people living there? Are there families? Are there kids? So the bomb like looks this up, and you know gets to get a sense of all right. Well, who am I trying to kill here? Uh, and I thought that was really a powerful scene. Ensign Kim mentions, hey, you know, you were really upset earlier when you thought you were paralyzed and you didn't have any arms or legs and you were blind. Do you really want to do this to people that live? on this planet um it doesn't work but it looks like the bomb is a little rattled like it's still trying to question stuff i i thought this is where the scene i perked up in my chair i was really really excited by this yeah no it was it was good and and i think you know you can kind of see the ai like think about this and then very quickly once he gets too far down the road he's like that's just propaganda like Mm -hmm. you know this is the, the enemy has planted these false like this false information so i can't be tricked and it was very interesting how that played out I like that it's kind of figuring it out. It's like an interesting way to portray artificial intelligence versus it being totally mission-oriented or it being not mission-oriented at all and really susceptible to susceptible to influence. I think it was, I particularly like that they, you know, it, it started describing it as propaganda because it's like clearly this thing was created by um, <laughs> some sort of like government engineers and it had some, has some like propaganda recognition protocol or something it's it's coding to like to like fall back on you know in case this issue came up so uh yeah i agree tim that was was a cool scene yeah and we learn a little bit more about the bomb when we finally get the traitor uh he comes by he says oh yeah 
This particular series has a class 11 intelligence factor. It's warp capable, fully armored, self-guiding. It has a maximum range of 80 light years. It can fly through an ion storm or an armada of hostile ships and still find its target. Charming. How do I get it off my ship? You can't. But I can. Nice guy. He offers to disarm the bomb for the crew, but he, he wants one thing in return. What is that game? He, he wants the bomb. <laughs> he wants to keep it. And they figure out <laughs> that he's going he's gonna to sell it on the market to some maybe not nice people, even though this trader seemed very nice. So so the crew politely says, you know, no, thanks. We'll, we'll figure out another way to deal with this issue. And the trader turns out he's not such a nice guy. After he goes back to his ship, he starts attacking Voyager and trying to take the weapon. And the weapon, the AI figures this out, uh, actually sends some sort of pulse Star Trek-y thing back through and destroys the traitor's ship, basically to protect itself from getting getting hijacked and dismantled. So I think this scene kind of shows that this is like the equivalent of the killing the hostage mm-hmm. uh, scene in, in, in a hostage movie to show that this weapon is willing to kill in order to accomplish its mission to kind of up the stakes. But enter... Seven of Nine, who seems to be, if, if I knew anything about Voyager, I knew that people of a certain age uh, really enjoyed uh, Seven of Nine. Who is Seven of Nine? Why is that name the name that it is? Maybe it should be better as a mystery. Well, who is this character? Because she comes in with a, a solution to use nanoprobes of some sort to disarm the bomb. But this is where the, the Star Trek, and after this amazing scene, this episode started to lose me because I don't know the context of this. Guys, explain it to me. Yeah, so Seven of Nine is a... Uh... A reformed Borg, I guess. Uh, so she she was a uh, human. Uh, she became assimilated by the Borg. They're like a parasitic race, essentially, in uh, Star Trek. And they go around assimilating planets, and they are basically collectives. So there's one hive mind. And they have these, like, probe things, and they stick them in your neck or something. And then your body begins to transform into this, like, half-organic, half-mechanical, cybernetic creature. And they spread throughout the galaxy, um, basically... Conquering. They played heavily in uh, Next Generation, in First Contact. They're a really, they're, they're the, you know, the antagonists. And then in uh, Voyager, they they pop up mostly through Seven of Nine, who is a, a Borg that they rescue basically from the Collective. They're able to take the the, impl- the the cybernetic growths off of her, but she still retains some of that technology in her in her body, and she certainly has a has an attitude that is not necessarily normal. <laughs> so she's like <laughs> um, a little little rough around the edges, very matter of fact, even more so than like the Vulcans who are who are known for that. They're you know seven nine is like very very direct and very very mechanical. So these like nano nano probes uh, are, are kind of a technology that's that's sort of explained, but it's like pervasive throughout Borg society. It's basically the little they're little things in in her blood that allows her to like interact with other forms of technology so i think she thought she'd be able to okay. kind of probe into the 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 device and uh or the bomb and deactivate it but uh as we as we learned that that was not successful it was not a bad plan that they had here to to deal with the bomb gabe what you want to explain the, the plan that they had here it's a, it was a fun bit of like you know oh you're trying to trick us, uh, you know, with some stuff. Let's uh, let's play this simu- simulation game with you. They're going to fly through a fake minefield. I'm doing air quotes now, minefield. Um, <laughs> and uh, they're going to simulate some explosion. So they're in, it's funny. They're on the ready, ready room. There's this one scene or the briefing room, I guess. And Chakotay, he's like the first officer. 
he's like giving everyone their role and it just felt like one of those heist movies where it's like <laughs> you like you're gonna go do this and then you're gonna go do this like tom paris you're gonna make the ship bumpy and then uh seven you're gonna get like fake injured so the idea is they're gonna they're gonna hit a mine which doesn't really exist but they're gonna manipulate the sensors somehow so the robot the ai thinks there's mines they're gonna do some 24th century plastic surgery on seven of nine to make it look like she got really badly burned get her into the sick bay and then she'll be able to, using her Borg technology, inject these nano probes into the weapon to be able to disarm it. But James, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It works up into the point they, they're able to trick the bomb into letting them into sick bay. The, the plasma burns look convincing, but once she probes in, something goes wrong. She basically the the, the bomb basically retaliates. She collapses and she's 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 pretty hurt. So she's now out of commission in, in sick bay. You know, I think this was only like halfway through the episode. So <laughs> kind of knew it was going to be, yeah. kind of knew it wasn't going to be successful, but. But we do get a twist. Uh, like like every good Star Trek episode, uh, there is some sort of a twist somewhere kind of in the, you know, three quarters of the way through. And it's, now we're starting to talk my language about uh, bombs and nuclear attack missions and potentially accidental um, orders and things like this. So we do learn from this kind of recovering some of this memory that it turns out that the bomb actually might have been a accidental launch. There are several disruptions in my memory index, including a three minute, 37 second gap just prior to the crash. You received a subspace transmission, a command to alter course and head toward the planet's surface. Looks like your landing wasn't an accident. It was an attempt by the enemy to divert me from my target. No, your access codes are encrypted. They must have developed an infiltration code. What if it wasn't the enemy? Who else would try to divert me? Correct me if I'm wrong, but these are the same duotronic algorithms that you use to communicate with. My own people wouldn't try to stop me. Maybe they changed their mind. The enemy is ruthless. My target is a threat. Why would my people call off the assault? If we clear up some more of these memory files, maybe we'll find out. Your assistance is no longer required. What's wrong? You afraid you might find out you're not supposed to destroy that installation? They find out strategic command matrix, which I certainly loved, um, you know, instead of strategic air command, order the crash. Turns out the war was over uh, and had been for several years. And the launch of the warhead, you know, that we know and love, uh, as well as 33 other ones of those, uh, was a malfunction. It was a mistake. All long-range tactical armor units terminate mission immediately. Keep reading. It says... The war is over. It ended nearly three years ago. My launch was a mistake. There was a malfunction in one of the command sensors. It activated a series of launch sequences. My people managed to shut most of them down, but 34 weapons were fired, including me. I guess this means you can disarm yourself now. No, there's no confirmation code here. So that's why the other one crashed, and I guess maybe the bomb that we know uh, tried to crash, but it didn't explode. Uh, it didn't, you know, it didn't, um, you know, detonate. But the bomb, of course, as Gabe mentioned, thinks this is propaganda. It doesn't trust this information. And the fun thing is, he refuses to look even any further into his memory files for like what they call the confirmation number. He needs a confirmation number to know that this order was incorrect. But he just refuses because he he thinks probably right. If I have no mission anymore. If I was meant to explode and kill these people, but I was actually aborted, like, what purpose do I have 
exist. You know, like that joke in, in Rick and Morty, like, what is your purpose that he builds this machine and it's to get butter from across the table? Like, if that's his mission and the butter's gone, like, what what am I supposed to do here? I thought that was really interesting. Uh, but then he tells, Ensign Kim convinces the bomb, or at least talks to him, like, look, you might restart the war. You might actually kill the people that you think you're going to protect. I am programmed to destroy my target. I will complete my mission. If the war is over, you could end up starting another one. How many of your people will die then? I love this scene. I thought this scene was terrific. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, debating that's going on, you know, on sickbay. Harry Kim, I think, feels really bad. He feels responsible. He doesn't usually lead away missions. He's a, he's a more junior guy. He feels bad for starting this, so I think he's really struggling. But in the meantime, the ante is up because 30, I think 32 of the other warheads, because there were 34, yeah. there's the one on the ship and the one that crashed. The 32 show up, like, near Voyager, because I guess they hear his signal or something and they want his friend to go join him and they're going to all go complete the mission together so like the stakes are up they're going to go do it now interesting enough this whole game theory thing continues now because bomb loses even more of its leverage because if it blows up voyager it's going to destroy all of these other weapons and janeway kind of knows this and says like you know she's willing to like sacrifice her her crew if it means saving the lives of others needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one so there's all this kind of stuff going on both inside the sick bay and outside it's just really interesting yeah i agree i i, I love the scene like just kind of thinking about war like that we you know historically and stuff it reminds me you know this is like the, you know battle of new orleans and the war of 1812 that took place 18 18 days after they signed the <laughs> the treaty of ghent or whatever so it's like you know the, the war's over but but these uh these hostilities are still are still going because of, of lapses or breakdowns in communication and it's kind of fun to think about that in such an advanced civilizational context in history we think about it because someone had to ride a horse from washington to new orleans or something that you know that would have taken however long or you know it's funny to see these like these pervasive issues in, in communications and conflict happening even at this fictionalized highly technologically advanced level they they, they, just, they can't they can't get a signal to the to the weapon you know to to to, to turn it off or to to tell it to abort so um yeah i enjoyed this part a lot just to tip a, a little bit into the nuclear stuff i mean this is what what resonated with me because uh even as as long ago as what you mentioned uh james and as, as far into the future as the star trek episode you know took place somewhere in the middle there was the cold war and there was a lot of miscommunication. There was always these concerns about, you know, how do how are we going to know that a nuclear war started? Well, for a while, it was, well, we'll have radar. We'll know that there are bombers coming over the Arctic, over Canada, coming towards the United States. They're from the Soviet Union, and they're going to start dropping bombs, you know, by airplane. And then... Th- Sure, we'll rely on that, but a lot of times our radar was wrong. There was confusions um, about, you know, flocks of seagulls or flocks of birds that look like on a radar to potentially be a bunch of, um, you know, heavy bombers from Russia coming over the way. So that sprung people into action before they realized what was happening. But even just simply, how do you know when you think there might be an incoming attack? Do you want to wait to see if the bombs start to fall before you're like, okay, no, this is not a mistake. This is not some sort of false attack or whatever. Like this actually is happening. So there was questions about, do we wait for a bomb to hit the ground? If you do, how do you know it was a nuclear bomb? Is that how it takes time to realize that a, a, it's not just a really big bomb and not a small, relatively small nuclear bomb. There's all kinds of communication issues. How do you maintain an effective communication from when uh, an incoming attack is detected, communicating that to the president, the president making a decision, that decision very quickly going from, from that person to the national command authority and 
then to a bomber or to a submarine or to someone in a silo somewhere. Having that is a very quick within like 10 minute conversation and no one be able to disrupt it, whether it was weather, poor communication lines, someone actively trying to disrupt it. Like all of those things are really complicated. So it's it's fascinating here in this situation because apparently the strategic command matrix sent out this abort code. The two bombs that we have interacted with so far, one of them successfully aborted by crashing into the planet. The other one tried to, but did, you know didn't explode. These other 32 got the message, but they were already past, like they called it, a threshold, a, a point where they can't be diverted, which I thought was very interesting that they had this kind of rule. But they're also, this has a, a, equivalencies to you know heavy bombers. At a certain point, they were told no longer to receive any sort of communication from you know the National Command Authority, because at that point, they're already past the point of no return literally they're already in russian airspace at that point they can start to receive signals from like the russians uh there so like if you if you're past this point you continue with your mission and there aren't any sort of recall signal after a certain point so i think there's a direct comparison there and it all can be disrupted if there's some sort of malfunction or some sort of an issue that happens Uh, but the bomb because it's an ai and because of ensign kim's you know, convincing, it decides what to sacrifice itself and draw the other bombs together and self-detonate. Yeah, and I, I think like the, the jump to get there is I think finally Kim convinces it to at least look right, right. at these missing data and to like at least see whether these command codes existed. And I think, you know, I think Kim kind of says to him at one point, like, oh, you haven't you felt like more of an individual as you, you know, occupied the doctor swarm? And, and sure enough, he the AI looks and sees these uh, command codes uh, confirming the orders that, that this was, you know, the attack was to be aborted. And, you know, from there decides, well, it's it's going to complete its mission. It's going to blow up. It's just going to do it a little bit differently. And it's going to take out all these other warheads at the same time. After 39121, cessation of hostilities confirmed. Unauthorized launch confirmed. Order to terminate mission confirmed you must disarm yourself and tell the others to stand down it's a deception this code of yours uses a modulating algorithm it would be almost impossible to duplicate the enemy is ruthless they are violent have you ever met the enemy you're just spouting propaganda what you've been programmed to believe i have a directive it's been countermanded i am a series 5 long-range tactical armor unit designed to traverse enemy space and circumvent all attempts to deter me you're a sentient being I have a duty to protect my people, to destroy my target! You've been programmed with intelligence so you can make decisions on your own. Well, it's time to make one. Countless lives are at stake! Reintegrate my neural matrix and return me to the others. It won't do that. I have no intention of proceeding to my target. I will stop them. How? I am a weapon of mass destruction. And and it had a little bit of a moment of... uh like an Arnold one-liner. It's like, well, how are you going to, to do that? And he looks at it and goes, I'm a weapon of mass destruction. <laughs> but yeah, so, so James, what happens? It kind of gets dropped off. It gets bo- beamed out of, out of the... Uh... Beamed out of Voyager, out of sick bay. And there's a pretty cool scene with uh, 1999 uh, <laughs> CGI of these like 32 missile-looking things kind of cruising in formation through space. It uh, joins, the, joins the cohort and then it makes the makes the ultimate sacrifice, I guess. There's a, a big boom <laughs> of 30, 32 antimatter, antimatter warheads exploding simultaneously. Uh, in nuclear war planning, that's called fracticide. 
It's when you, if you want to hit a target with more than one weapon, which you sometimes do because there might be a situation where one of them misses, or it might be a heavily, you know, hardened silo door, and you really want to destroy it, and maybe you're not going to get close enough and you need to fire one after each other. Uh, You have to make sure that one of them explodes, dissipates, and then the second one comes in, because otherwise you're just wasting bombs, throwing them into a firestorm, it doesn't actually explode. I don't know, a a lot of fracticide in this situation. Yeah, 32 is a lot. Yeah, they shouldn't have. They, they're flying really close. They, uh, they all must stretch each other. I would have loved to have seen one scene, uh, like right before it explodes, like one of the other ones, like, hey, Phil, I'd good to see you. Oh. <laughs> That's going to be the spin off. The, the, the Tim Westmire fan fiction spin off. I, I wonder, before we, we, we finish the episode here, do you think that these. How long were these bombs somewhere else? Because they were somewhere else. So they get stuck. Where were they? Uh, like. How long, I guess, do we have any getting sense of, like, how long these bombs were flying around? This is all for the fan fiction, the Tim Westmeyer fan fiction spinoff to, to decide. There's going to be some backs. No, I, I have no idea. It is a weird idea that they would just, like, yeah, why did these two only, only these two go rogue, you know? Like, how long were these two on the planet? Like, it seemed like a little bit of time, right? Yeah, I yeah. think it was a while. I think it was, like. I don't know if they said anything in the episode, but it seems like it was a while. Well, the, the trader said they have a range of 80 light years in terms of distance, which is quite, I think the Federation in Star Trek is something like 300 light years and across. So, hmm. you know, they could, I guess, conceivably travel a good, a good chunk of the civilized, civilized space. Yeah, I guess that doesn't really tell you how long they've been out there. Could have been decades, probably not decades, years. Yeah. Uh, well, we never, we, I don't, I mean, maybe they mentioned at one point and I didn't catch it, but um we don't, we don't know, but we do know that the doctor's back. Uh, the, the hologram doctor is back. Uh, he goes to help the crew and, you know, kind of get be- get better. And there's a, an interesting scene where the doctor apologizes to, to, to Kim. But Kim says, you know, no, it was your example of how an AI can exceed its programming. Kind of convinced him that of a strategy to convince the bomb that it could be more than a, more than a bomb, more than just a killing machine, more than just a weapon of mass destruction. It's pretty good. And then there's a fun scene at the end where Ensign Kim is back on his fifth night of bridge duty, and he tells the officer there to ignore all distress calls, uh, even if this particular call uh, is coming from sick orphans and puppies being attacked by Romulans. Um, that's how I interpret it anyways. He said, no, no more distress calls. I need a, a night off. Uh, and then the episode ends. Uh, what do you guys think about that episode? I mean, how does this fit into the kind of broader canon that you've seen in terms of Star Trek Voyager? If I can indulge myself briefly just on that last point, I think, you know, I know this is this is uh, principally a podcast about, about nuclear weapons, but there's some interesting takeaways from that last one about mm-hmm. um, being being cagey about humanitarian intervention after. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some other other foreign policy uh, lessons, lessons learned here. Um, yeah, I had... It did my thing. Give me 10 years. This episode, it was, it's not one of the more noteworthy. First of all, like, let's put Voyager in context. Among, like, hardcore Star Trek people, like, Voyager is not, you know, I'm with James. I like the series a lot. Where does it place with Enterprise? uh, Better than Enterprise. Enterprise is, like, not good. Uh, But Voyager, it's just not not as good as um, Next Generation Deep Space Nine. So, and within Voyager, I don't think this this episode is a particularly memorable one. As you say, it's kind of like a bottle episode. So no big like fights with the Borg or crazy technology or even things that kind of, there are some interpersonal stories in the show that get moved forward. But I like going back and rewatching this, I was amazed at how much they were able to like really pack into 45 minutes between like all the stuff about, you know, AIs and exceeding their programming 
to the like game theory, you know, mutually assured destruction stuff to the not defecting or, or thinking that the war is still going on. Like it, there, there was just a lot in here. So actually I, it kind of brought me back to why I enjoyed Voyage. These are not designed for like the general public consumption and for people who want to <laughs> see explosions. These are people who like wanted to like get nerdy and think and just go all in on this kind of stuff. Yeah, this is not, I'm going to, I'm probably going to um, call back to something you guys were talking about when you're doing your, your first contact episode. This is not action Star Trek. Hmm. This is, this is the more cerebral, uh, cerebral aspects, aspects of the show that is quite distinct from like certainly the current style of movies that they're doing, but also some, some later, I think other, other episodes of the show. Yeah. I mean, you know, in terms of the episode itself, like a little bit meta, I guess, like this was the, this was the penultimate episode of the fifth season which is crazy to think about in terms of how TV is shot now. It's like, if this were the, you know, the, the next to last episode of a season of television, you'd be setting up major mechanical and story plot devices right. for, for that final episode. And then the first episode of the next season, this is just so sequestered in its own, its own world, which was how, you know, it's, it's a throwback because that's how television worked back then. They did usually the last episode of the season would tie into the next, the first episode of the, the next season. So they, they were kind of, you started to see that, that form of TV where you are carrying storylines throughout multiple, multiple seasons, but you get the last episode of one season and the first episode of the, the next season that were connected, but beyond the major plot, um, these stories were, were so, so isolated from each other. So it's, it's kind of cool that they're able to, to do something like this. Well, one, one thing I, I found so interesting when I did some research for this was how quickly this episode was conceived and written and then record, you know, basically filmed and then shown was not that long. It was like he, it was somewhere in, in February and eventually in, in May of the same year was when the episode was was released. The executive producer, Brandon Braga, who we talked about earlier, he said in an interview that he was inspired to make this episode because of a real life nuclear weapons, uh, you know, threats that he was seeing. He said, quote, uh, it's a post-Cold War analogy. In some ways, I was watching a Frontline on PBS special, and they did this story on Russian arsenal of nuclear weapons and how they are basically up for grabs. Anything could happen to these damn things. They could be launched accidentally. They could be sold on the black market. And that's what spawned the idea. So this PBS Frontline episode, I, I rewatched this past week or in, and also reread the, uh, the, the transcript for it. It's called Russian Roulette. It aired on February 23, 1999. And this episode aired in, in May. So clearly this thing like inspired, you know, Braga to write this and this episode really truly reflects the mid 1990s, uh, mid mid to late 1990s, at least in terms of the threats uh, that the nuclear weapon landscape was facing. The worries that the, a lot of people had was after the end of the Cold War, the, Russia no longer had military funding and motivation to maintain its nuclear arsenal, which in the during the Cold War had expanded to be, you know, tens of thousands of warheads and missiles everywhere deployed all around the world, large ICBMs, small tactical weapons that are deployed in the field. So the worry was either there would be some sort of theft or smuggling of these weapons in Russia, particularly see smaller ones, uh, and or an issue to, that my company was founded to kind of help deal with uh, what's called, you know, the brain drain of weapons of mass destruction expertise, people that used to be really good at building weapons of mass destruction or a missile, but no longer had a paycheck, 
You know who could pay them? North Korea, Libya, Iraq, uh, Iran, other places, terrorist organizations. So there was a lot of effort, a lot of work that was done in the 90s to help reduce this threat. There's this program called the Nunn-Luger Program, which was started by Sam Nunn from Georgia, a senator, uh, and Senator Richard Lugar from uh, Indiana. This program really helped since starting in 1991 to work cooperatively with Russia to consolidate its missiles, its weapons, its warheads, uh, bring them back from countries like Belarus, Ukraine, uh, Kazakhstan, weapons where they were left uh, when the Cold War ended, bringing them back to Russia, as well as trying to, you know, secure these things uh, and dismantle Russian nuclear weapons. It's a fun program I always like to talk about, uh, Megatons to Megawatts, which was a program where the United States purchased a lot of highly enriched weapons-grade uranium from the Soviet Union, uh, well, from Russia, uh, that was in the Soviet Union, and then blended it down to use in U.S. nuclear civilian power plants. And at one point, one out of every 10 light bulbs powered in the United States, you could argue, was powered by this fuel. Uh, so it was a lot of efforts that were done. Around 1990, uh, Russia had still around 6,000 operational nuclear weapons and a lot, you know, in storage. And, but, you know, the military was degrading its weapons, supplies, and morale. Uh, the movie The Peacemaker uh, from 1997 really takes on this theme and we've covered that on this episode. I, I just think uh, Brandon Braga was concerned by this. He wrote a story about it. I think it really does a good job of reflecting the overall kind of picture here uh, with, with nuclear weapon situations. But I, I've seen this pop up in a lot of different nuclear weapon media, and I think they did a pretty good job here. I think, the, the, and we've talked about it, but the key the key thing here is that they get to talk to the bomb. They're not talking with a, you know, some foreign or, or alien power they're not negotiating with you know another uh another civilization they're talking directly to the bomb which i think is an interesting you know like coming out of all these these cold war anxieties and those sort of lifting a little bit in the 1990s it's interesting like how many people watching this were like would have you know you maybe you would want to talk directly to the bomb it's kind of an interesting <laughs> way to do it right james i, I find this really fascinating because i think you could have you could have a philosophical debate about whether or not uh, the U.S. military, or at least you know that where we are today in the world, we we kind of already apply a personality to the bomb. We talk about uh, the bomb threats, this and that. Well, it's like, well, yeah, the bomb is threatening, but it's people who threaten. So who are the people who actually are from point A who you know conceived of the weapons, built the weapons, armed the weapons? put the weapons on a, on, a, on an airplane or push, you know, the a metaphorical button to launch them, people who are delivering these things. Like, there are people along the way, but we kind of build an entire system to make deterrence work. We force people to basically become machines. We try to remove as much of the human element as possible so that we don't have crews on a heavy bomber debating whether or not this is even a good idea. We want people to be able to follow through a mission, you know, which from one perspective, you can say, if you're going to have nuclear weapons, you need to make sure that they get used when you want them to because if there's a, a thought that your side is not willing to use them then the other side might be more willing to use them first and not fear retaliation but it forces people to kind of become death machines and not think through you know what the consequences of that are so i really find that fascinating i, I basically the whole time i thought about when they're negotiating with this warhead when it's in the form of the doctor, I just kept thinking of this other movie that we that we covered on the podcast, which was uh, uh, by Dawn's Early Light, where it's about um, Powers Booth uh, and a bunch of other people on a heavy bomber discussing whether or not the orders were real or not for recalling their mission and kind of what they wanted to do and how long they needed to debate. And it's like those kind of crew debates. The bomb essentially is having that uh, with itself and then with the crew of the uh, the, the Voyager. 
And so I find that super interesting and I kept drawing to myself as deterrence works because we force people, people both on in the silos or on a submarine or on a bomber and also the people who are making these decisions in, in Washington or, or Moscow or other places to be acting a little bit like machines themselves. So James, I think you're onto something there. Tim, I, I definitely had a lot of the same feelings. And to me, what just came through was that these weapons, we tend to think of them as just these cold, you know, things out of nowhere, but they, they take people, like you say, they take people to operate. They take, they, they take people to like conceive and decide to use them. And so to, to take this bomb and put it in that situation, I, I almost feel like the AI is kind of channeling all those people along the chain. And I think the other thing that struck me was just the strength of propaganda, the strength of kind of conditioning that mm-hmm. we use to make these weapons work. Um, I was very struck by um, these stories of all these Japanese holdouts after World War II that kind of hold themselves out on these Pacific islands and for in some cases, like three decades, refused to accept that the war was over and thought that pamphlets being dropped telling them that the war was over was propaganda from the enemy and that they needed to continue to fight the war. It just shows the strength of, you know, that propaganda to make this kind of stuff work. So I, I that's kind of what hit me when, when watching that. I would also really give the Voyager some credit because they touched on a lot of other very common nuclear war, Cold War movie tropes in particular the one that probably got me uh into this podcast idea in the first place that continues to irk me grinds my gears uh whenever i'm, I'm kind of watching something and i go oh you can just think you can recall missiles um that's not how it works it's a bad idea for people to think that you could recall a missile an icbm once it gets launched because then like oh well we can recall the missile and the president can push a button and then it will explode or whatever it's like no these things when they're launched they're ballistic they follow a path you can't abort them because they don't want to get into a situation that the bomb in this show cared about it this order to abort was probably sent in from the enemy right so that we can, we I should ignore it because it was it was a false, uh, you know, information. Uh, but this really makes for a great plot device in a lot of nuclear weapon popular culture. Uh, there's a lot of those that are out there. Things like, you know, there are a lot of good movies that cover this, like Doctor Strangelove, uh, Failsafe, Crimson Tide by Dawn's Early Light. And there's some silly to bad movies like Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, and uh, G.I. Joe Retaliation. They all love this idea of putting us into a situation where there's a, a, an attack ongoing whether it's from a, a missile or from a heavy bomber on its way. And we just need to try to convince that the, the mission is not, you know, it's an accident or we need to recall something or we can abort it at the last minute. Uh, but again, as we've talked about this podcast so often, there aren't really a mechanism uh, to do so. But people did debate that there should be. Apparently, we are supposed to. There is this treaty in 1971 uh, that the United States and the Soviet Union signed called the 1971 Accidents Agreement. And this treaty, uh, one of the clauses here, I think clause two, says, quote, the parties undertake to notify each other immediately in the event of an accidental, unauthorized, or any other unexplained incident involving the possible detonation of a nuclear weapon, which could create the risk of outbreak of nuclear war. And, well, in quote, uh, continuing, in the event of such an, an accident, the party whose nuclear weapon is involved will make every effort to take necessary measures to render harmless or destroy such a weapon without causing damage. But the problem is we don't have any mechanism to do so. If you have a test missile, you know, all those ones they do out of Vanderburg and they kind of test to see if the ICBM parts are still working or if they're building new ones. 
those have things built in in case there's an issue they can detonate it when it's flying but once you put these things out in the field there isn't a mechanism to actually destroy them once they get launched you can try to shoot them down when they're up in the boost phase initial really hot relatively slower burn but once they're in space or they're on their way down there really isn't sort of any sort of mechanism about this but people have thought about it there were a lot of debates um to maybe put these things called destructive action links which are kind of a fun way of describing there's this other stuff called permissive action links which are like codes a lock on a bomb if you want to use it you have to be given a code you turn this code on and then you can actually use the weapon there were this idea well why don't we also need destructive action links you could send some kind of a signal when a, a launch is an accident or unauthorized and you can cause it to detonate it's really complicated uh there's technically feasible but there's lots of issues and so nothing kind of ever having to happening with it but it was something that was debated about ultimately decided they didn't want to go through with it the weapon planners but, and apparently in the Star Wars universe, they had it. And I do want to throw this question out there to the Star, Star Trek, Trek people. Star Trek. You, you said Star Wars universe. You're going to get destroyed by angry commenters who will show up at your house. In the Star Trek universe, apparently they have solved this problem. And they're comfortable with some sort of, you know, abort code being put out there. But... Why do you think there is a need to have AI with your missile slash bomber? It seems to work well in the episode, but what is the, the Star Trek logic here? Because I did some research. There are apparently like a lot of episodes that deal with AI-related weapons and that are fighting wars that no longer exist. It seems to be a thing that they that Voyager returns to again and again. What is, is it about, you think, Star Trek that like thinks that this needs to be something that isn't included there? I was thinking about this, and I don't, I, I don't know if I can point to a particularly Star Trek thing about it. I, I think it's... Well, number one, it, it this seems like a this seems like a tactical mistake hmm. to do this, um, to include this level of AI in a weapon. I don't know. I, maybe it's something. And again, I don't know if this like more meta, but like this is something the Star Trek audience would would like. Like this idea that this this technology exists where there is this sort of like sentience within not everyday things, but things that are, are you know, are, are often not personified. Like since the, the genesis of the Federation and the, the Star Trek world is like a large scale nuclear conflict, mm -hmm. like 600 million dead, like you did the first context stuff, so you know all this, but like I find that their attitudes towards weapons of mass destruction to be quite interesting. Because um, you'd think that like they would be this utopian society that exists in Star Trek within the Federation, no, no poverty, no war, no hunger. All of these things exist in the wake of ultraviolent destruction. But like they're always pretty cool with with these things. They're like they're pretty yeah. chill, like with this thing being on the ship. And they weren't. I mean, there was anxiety and they were scared about it, but it wasn't like even when they knew what it was, they were still more concerned about the, the sentient being that was connected with it rather than what you know, the, the true nature of, of the device. And I, I just think that's interesting, like that the society that has seen, you know, they've read in history, even though the, the I guess in, in terms of timeline, that, that conflict happened 350 years before, so it is quite in the distant past, I guess, but that they wouldn't just be so like opposed to the continued existence of these weapons, that they would still just be so calm and cool about it is, is interesting to me. I don't know. Even with the Prime Directive, I, I, I get what they're trying to, to do there, but the idea at the end of this episode, uh, okay, well, maybe we, we guess we don't really know if uh, Jeroda still has hundreds, thousands of these weapons still available at any point they decide at some point I can go just completely wipe out one of these other planets. I guess this is probably not part of the Federation, but if you join the Federation, do you have to give up these kinds of weapons or just like, nah, we'll manage it. Like, what if these things decided one day to turn towards Earth or, you know, Vulcan or some other planet wherever they wanted to 
to destroy next. Is that something that the Federation is just generally comfortable with? These kinds of weapons existing and they're not trying to to reduce their their, their threat? Well, they've also, I think, uh, and maybe Gabe, you know more about this than I do, but they, I'm pretty sure the Federation used atomic weaponry against the Romulans in like some war hmm. that happened 200 years before Voyager or something like that. There's, there's some like, I think it's the Earth or Terran Romulan War. There's something uh, in the history about that. And it's like, and it's described in a, an episode by Spock, like 100 years after the fact, you know, and he describes it as an atomic conflict. So I think it's interesting that like humanity went through a nuclear catastrophe that lasted like 30 years and killed 600 million people, but then they still retain a strategic supply of <laughs> atomic weapons for, for certain situations. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I think... Um... It, there is this interesting disconnect between Star Trek, like loftier principles and not just nukes, but I mean, they, they kill people, they blow up ships. They like, there's a lot of that. It's hard to kind of justify. So I don't think Star Trek is pacifist. I think it's like utopian in that, you know, we're not going out and killing people and seeking a fight. We'll, we'll kill ourselves or we'll kill someone else if, if we need to defend ourselves. So it's kind of an interesting point, actually. And so if you could take that approach, yeah, why not have, why not be comfortable with these sorts of things? But I think Janeway in this episode, she seems, she seems to take a pretty hard stance that this is not something that she's willing to, you know, deal with or just let happen on her watch how much she's willing to sacrifice the crew. I like if it actually came to that, I don't know. It's a good question. This ties into Janeway. The whole series has this kind of incredible guilt, similar to like the guilt that Harry feels on this mission. Janeway has this guilt of having marooned her crew out in the middle of the Delta quadrant. She like grapples with this multiple points. So the fact that in this episode, she'd be so quick to just say, all right, Mm -hmm. we're just going to kill like let the crew go doesn't seem to jive with the rest of the series but I, I again i i think they're trying to make a point about nuclear war drawing a line in the sand taking a moral stand about it you know again like bringing forward the human toll of, of what these things can do you know including with the humanizing of this ai of this weapon in the form of the ai yeah i, I thought those scenes where ensign kim were try, was trying to show the bomb kind of the humanitarian consequences of what it what it's going through it was very very powerful you know, there are people occasionally who who retire from either being a missileer or you know being a a, a bomber uh, pilot or a bomber crew member and decide they want to spend the rest of their career, the rest of their life, trying to find peaceful ways to disarm you know nuclear weapons and trying to find ways to can we can we keep the peace without these things that could potentially end the world. Um, it's it's very interesting, but it also really puts the 1990s Star Trek uh, into a very unique place because, of course, if this came out during the Cold War, there would be a different set of dynamics. But in the 90s, there was a sense that, you know, the nuclear war, in terms of global thermonuclear war between the U.S. and Russia, like that threat seems to be, you know, low. But there's this idea that maybe now that these weapons, they didn't go away when the Cold War ended. They still existed. They still existed in many countries that didn't want them, like Ukraine or Belarus or, you know, Kazakhstan. They were left there. It was painful to negotiate them, to return them back to Russia. Uh, and it wasn't clear at any point that maybe maybe Ukraine just wants to be a nuclear power forever. And there were treaties about negative security assurances. We weren't going to attack you if you give us these weapons. We we see today that that uh, no longer uh, has, is holding, you know, the situation. But there was it was painfully negotiated. And the idea here is the worry for a lot of people in the 90s, including this PBS frontline special, was it's, it's actually more 
challenging to deal with, you know, thousands of nuclear weapons. They no longer have a, a, has a mission. You know, we, they don't longer have a target. If these things are out there and no one's keeping them safe, uh, you know, keeping the, the nuclear bomb in a, in a nice safe place uh, and warm and secure and locked up, these things are going to get smuggled. Um, they're going to get found new missions that may be more usable and the traditional deterrence is no longer going to hold this up. So like the idea that the original creators of these bombs in this scenario kind of matter a lot less than the bomb itself and what it could be used for. I think this episode does a really good job of, of really po- pinpointing how traditional deterrence no longer has much of an effect uh, as it used to. And, and this is something that I know James has just talked to me about when we were talking, you know, prep for this episode. You know, what does this look like in the world of Star Trek when you have these weapons that can be flown 80 light years away and destroy an entire planet how do you deter against that if you're this on um, Selena Prime? Like, if you have those weapons too, like, do you have to detect an incoming attack and launch your own weapons back? Maybe the idea of the AI is so smart because it can kind of fly around and avoid or, or they can fight their own wars. Uh, it's hard to tell, but it's 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 interesting. I think that when Star Trek touches on these things, uh, it's really, really cool. I think, you know, the more I think about this, you know, AI doesn't have to be like hyper intelligent and i think it's interesting this ai is like very susceptible to the propaganda and i wonder if there's a point they're trying to make there about you know smart people being able to be <laughs> co-opted by propaganda but I, I think the the big message at least in in voyager especially with the doctor's characters one of my favorite characters in all of star trek actually um is uh you can go beyond that programming right we have the capability as as humans implied, you know, machines have it too, but you can go beyond that. And I think there is, especially in like these times, uh, we're seeing what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. This is now mid-March, 2022. You know, we've had a lot of people on the Russian side reportedly defecting and saying, what I've been told is not consistent with what I'm seeing on the ground. These people are not, you know, uh, Nazis or pedophiles or whatever and making that decision, which to overcome that programming in spite of all those odds, it's it's possible, but I don't think it's easy. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Like the the idea about the susceptibility of people who are, are smart, you know, technically to, to to propaganda definitely rings true with this with this device and this bomb. Yeah, and I to go back kind of what you're saying about like they're definitely not this isn't this isn't a world of pacifists for sure. Mm-hmm. They're like blowing stuff up, destroying stuff. It's almost like, and I, I think their interaction with the bomb is telling, it's like the Star Trek world, it's like the fulfillment of technocracy, right? They're all, they're all technocrats. That's, that's basically their, their philosophy and their guiding to the extent that they don't, I don't think they have like political principles, but that is their, their principle, I guess, is that um, with sufficient advancement in technology, you can eradicate, you could eradicate, eradicate all the, the issues in society. But it's interesting that even with that, those things removed and even having this um, empirical approach to the world and discovery and, and exploration that they still get into jams like this, right? <laughs> There's still, <laughs> still like this, how do we engage with this? It's not a life form, but this this form of intelligence that's that's different and we can't quite understand. Well, it seems like they get into this jam a lot. Um, so I'm moving from my, I'm done with my nuke uh, rants and moving on to what I call the parking lot movie discussion, which is kind of when we talk a little bit about something that's, that's not nuclear related. Uh, parking lot refers to when I used to remember uh, my fine memories of talking with friends in the parking lot after seeing a movie in the movie theater before we went our separate ways. I wanted to ask you all, like, apparently, I guess this is a, a well um, that they return to a lot in Voyager. There was an episode called Dreadnought, which is a, a famous 
famous one in 96 and I guess something else called, called Prototype in 96 and they're both about convincing AI's weapons that they bring on the ship from fighting a, a long forgotten war. Why do you think this is something in Star Trek lore that they keep returning to? I think it's just such a ethically, it's, it's such a rich subject matter for ethical debates and discussions about, you know, war and, and, and morality and, and I think it's just interesting to see you can use science fiction to kind of personify it and, and explore that question that I drunkenly thought to myself <laughs> of like coming over the bridge of like what you know what is behind all this and uh, I don't know why Voyager did it so much and uh, James do you remember if there are other iterations of Star Trek I it seemed maybe like a uniquely Voyager thing. Yeah, it definitely was a Voyager thing. And these two, to be honest, quite honest, I don't remember Dreadnought. I think Prototype was one where it was like sort of a space laser that carved like a big trench from Florida to South America, like 4,000 kilometers long or something. It was less of a less of a bomb and more of like a, I don't, I don't even know, kind of like a kind of like a Death Star weapon, I guess, mm-hmm. where, you know, you sort of shoot a big laser beam at a planet. Um on a smaller scale. Yeah, I don't know what it was about Voyager. And it, it's interesting, I think, because they were so far from, they're so far from Earth. Like they're, it, it, it doesn't, you wouldn't think it would necessarily align with the, the overarching plot of the show, which is to get home. Um, but it's something that they do engage with quite a bit more more so than other other star trek shows mm-hmm. or movies that you know are more connected to the planet earth i mean i think maybe it, again like you were saying tim this is just like it's hard to think about what we were what was in all of our heads in 1995 but like the cold war was probably what all of these writers grew up with and it was probably those anxieties were just kind of manifesting themselves through their storytelling but um more so than you know our current generation of writers where that's not mm-hmm. not as prevalent in their their upbringing. Well, one thing I really, really liked on this episode was how we never meet or really learn much about the Druoda or the Selena Prime folk. We know that they, you know, one side built a bomb. We don't even know if the other side is really all that savage because it might just be propaganda that the bomb's creators have kind of put together. We don't know much about them. We never meet them. We just deal with the weapon that one side created and get, you know, a whole world of uh, debate kind of just within there. I thought that was really fascinating because I know a lot of Star Trek, the fun thing is meeting the different planets, uh, people and, and kind of interacting with them. But this one is just, uh, I thought I really enjoyed the fact that we don't actually meet them, but we meet a, a thing that one of them created, which has its own character and life. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, I think it's a great storytelling choice because if you meet them or you learn anything more about the conflict, you might be like, Oh, well maybe we should. Yeah. 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 This- this military installation. Oh, they've got they've got three heads. Ugh, I don't like that. Yeah, right. Um, even if thinking about whether or not, you know, who started the conflict is is it a, is it a just conflict? Uh, is there is what is the power dynamic between these two civilizations or or, or peoples? If you know any of that, then you're going to start focusing on other things other than the right the bomb, which is what you know the, the writers did a good job there and in, in, in um, not revealing too much about outside things so so tim i gotta ask you you, you've seen some star trek now not not a whole lot um but some Uh, a decent i've I've seen most next gen okay well so that's a good question who do you pick based on what you saw the doctor are you gonna go data or are you gonna go the doctor as the more interesting character i think i'm gonna still go i'm still gonna go og i'm still gonna go data but the doctor's performance made me want to maybe be like, all right, Gabe, all right, James, maybe give me five episodes of Voyager to watch. 
and I will I will watch five episodes and see if I get hooked. Try to start Enterprise because I love me some Scott Bakula, uh, but it it didn't take. But maybe Voyager will because this was a fun episode. I don't know if this is great compared to other ones. You say it's you know run of the mill kind of forgotten episode, but it got me pretty well. Maybe it's the nuke stuff, but I enjoyed it. What about you, James? Data or the Doctor? I gotta go with Data. Um, I think he's just. He, he plays like a more stoic character. He's like truly this, this AI, this, this cyborg. But I think he just does it with more emotion despite expressing <laughs> less emotion. Um, I think it's just a better performance. Uh, I'm not, you know, I, the, the doctor's great. And I love, he pops into first contact as a little cameo. Yeah, yeah. And I like the idea that this program is like the doctor program and that <laughs> um, he's on like all the Federation starships, presumably with the same sort of smug personality. <laughs> I'm I'm a data guy. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna have Star Trek fans throwing self stealing self sealing stem bolts through my windows, but I'm gonna go Doctor, and here's why: because the Doctor he's like a nothing. He's like a piece of equipment that's designed to be used in the holodeck in an emergency. Right? Data is like from day one. He's like this brilliant supercomputer that walks and interacts and. The doctor is like this nothing that gets called to perform as the ship's doctor. And in the early episodes, he's he's surly as as you know what. He's like not a good dude. And then by the end, he just has he's a writer. He he plays music. He sings. He likes opera. He he just to, to watch his growth throughout the series is uh, to me much more satisfying. So come hate me, come hate me, fans. But that's my pick. <laughs> well, uh, James and I played D and D together, and I recently played a robot character, and my voice and mannerisms were basically just Data because it's easy to do. Uh, but I think it was also the fact that I loved I loved Data. Maybe I got to play. Maybe James will let me play a, a hologram Doctor at some point in the future. I think that's a great idea. I think there's a there's a cleric build there that would be that would be interesting. It's just weird though. I can't get hit. Because uh, I'm a hologram, but I'm very effective uh, in, in yeah throughout everything else. So we'll see how that goes. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's wrap up here. Let's do our rating system uh, where we rate the Warhead episode uh, out of five, with one being you know the worst and five being something that you think is terrific. But because I get super critical about the plot. I like to tailor the rating system and get super critical about that as well. Uh, I've talked to the Doctor. I've talked to Data. You know, we've we've crunched the numbers. Let's rate the episode Warhead on the scale of one out of five, seven of nines. If you have just one seven of nine, your mission is vulnerable to whatever, you know, she gets zapped by some sort of rogue AI missile thingy. Uh, But if you have five seven of nines, let me just bring out my calculator and do the math here. I think, yeah, five sevens, five of those. Okay, that's 3.88 repeating, of course. Uh, That'll get you through most of your hairy situations, no matter where you boldly go. Gabe, how many... Seven of nines, would you give this one? Oh my god. Uh, although, like, nerdy teenage Gabe is ready to give, like, <laughs> 30 sevens of not seven of nines, uh, I'd say four. Uh, I think it's a solid four. I mean, it, the fact that it's a bottle episode takes a little bit away, but there's a lot there. There's a, I mean, it, we've been talking for, what, like, an hour and a half about this, so, yeah, I'd say four. Okay. James, what about you? How many seven of nines would you give this? You have to give whole, a whole number rating. You, <laughs> you know, that's I've already gone past my uh, limit of math on this situation, but no, you, you can do whatever you want. No, no, I'll, I'll stick to... No, I, uh, I'm not doing a whole number. You can do whatever you want. Today's Pi Day, so you can be irrational <laughs> if you want. Yeah, I, forever, I, yeah. You know what? I came into this episode thinking I would give it a three out of five. I think after a conversation, 
you guys convinced me that it's probably a four out of five. It's a good, it's a good episode. Nice. Um, if you can get over some of the production aspects, I think it's 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 a four out of five. The writing's great. Yeah, the writing's great. I'll, I'll give it a three point seven five. It didn't amaze me as much as some of the other episodes that we've covered on the pa- on the past uh, episodes. Like you know, City on the Edge of Forever is just such a great episode. It's hard for me. It's it's the hard part to try to meet, but that was a good one. It's better than Assignment Earth, which is that one that was starting to spin off with uh, whatever that guy's name was. Yeah, that was that was a, that was cringe. But uh, it's so it's somewhere in the middle between those. I think three point seven five is a pretty good one for me, and it's definitely inspired me to to ask Gabe and James for a list of which episodes to check out. But if you, Gabe and James, and I want to recommend something else for someone to watch, uh, this is where we can do this now. So something that might be related to Warhead, to Star Trek, to Voyager, uh, or just something you recommend people to check out. I've got three things I'll mention pretty quickly. Uh, one is that PBS special uh, uh, from Frontline, uh, titled Russian Roulette from nineteen ninety. I'll put a link to that. Uh, it's it's pretty entertaining, and it's a PBS uh, frontline is pretty good. I recommend a movie directed by John Carpenter. His actually his first from 1974 called Dark Star. It's a bit of a cult movie, but it's good. It's about a bomb with AI that destroys planets. It's what it's designed to do, but it becomes self-aware in debates with a crew that's aboard a really long mission on a, on a spaceship, uh, whether or not it should explode. Uh, you know, sounds familiar, but it's it's quite a good episode, quite a good movie. And finally, because of the bomb uh, in the episode, not, you know, not knowing, you know, am I alive? I'm scared. I can't feel my arms and legs and I'm blind. It definitely reminded me of one of my favorite Metallica songs, One, and that's uh, it's on the Iron Justice for All album, which is also about a soldier from World War One who loses his limbs and his jaw, and he's stuck in a hospital bed, unable to hear, speak, or see, or interact with anybody. It's a good song. Reminded me of that when I watched the episode. Those are three things to check out. Gabe? So, I think, okay, I was talking about these Japanese holdouts. Uh, I kind of went down a rabbit hole and found this uh, interesting Smithsonian Magazine article, I guess, we can put a link to it about this guy named Soichi Yokoi, who even into the 1980s was like holed out on a Pacific Island. And he thought that the command to end the fighting was just propaganda and was ready to finish his mission. So um, some parallels to the episode. Um, another Star Trek Voyager episode that Tim reminded me of this uh, episode called Jatrell in, uh, I think it's season one, episode 15, has some overtones of Hiroshima where Neelix has to confront somebody who Uh, created a weapon that killed many of his people. And then uh, finally, um, if you want to go further into the podcast realm, uh, Garrett Wang and uh, Robbie McNeil, who played uh, Ensign Kim and Tom Paris, uh, they actually have a podcast called The Delta Flyers, where they are talking about every Voyager episode uh, and kind of talking about their um, recollection of it. I don't think they've covered this particular episode yet on the podcast, but uh, you can go check it out. Uh, it's kind of fun. Well, people who listen to the show definitely send the link to this episode over their way. Maybe uh, we can get Gabe and James connected with them. Uh, James, what do you? Anything you want to recommend people to check out? Yeah, I don't know if you've recommended this on a previous episode, but there is a 2007 movie uh, called Sunshine uh, with Killian Murphy, Irish actor, where they have to. Um, the the premise is that the sun has. Um, the sun has kind of gone cold and they need to restart it with hmm. uh nuclear payload. Have you guys done this one? No, that sounds fun. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's really good. There's a lot of good actors in it. It's like Cillian Murphy, Chris Evans, like Benedict Wong. So it's like a lot of familiar, familiar actors out there. And it's, it's pretty cool. It's like a, another space one um, that involves uh, 
evolved some of the things you guys talk about on this podcast. So that's Sunshine 2007, usually on one of the streaming services. I don't know what who has the rights to it right now, but mm-hmm. it's 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 out there. And then kind of just because, you know, uh, Tim and I are, are in this D&D game, uh, and I know Tim is the one of the most often cited uh, authors back in Game of Thrones days of comparing dragons to WMDs. I would just recommend one of the D&D books that came out this year, Fizban's Treasury of Dragons. If you're interested in Dungeons and Dragons, I think it's a, uh, it's a cool book. It has like a big list of different types of dragons, a lot of good lore. So even if you don't play the game, I think it's an interesting book for fans of, of, of fantasy, even sci-fi. It's, 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 a, it's a cool book. I mean, I know people have seen it, but I rewatched it recently. Just rewatch uh, Star Trek First Contact. I think it's one of the best uh, Star Trek films. Um, I think it, for a lot of Trek fans, it, it answers a lot of questions about the past and it's, it's, it's just well done. So I rewatched it recently. It holds up, even though it's from I think nineteen ninety six. It's it's still great. Yeah, I I loved when we covered that episode. Uh, that was a a lot of fun, and it's Gabe for was it Christmas one year? You got me the the Phoenix. Yes. yes yeah, yes, yes. I have the, I have that. I'm looking right at it. Uh, it's it's hanging right next to my uh, my Y wing from from Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Trek. I think people get those confused sometimes, uh, but I've. I got them hanging out. All Christmas gifts must be nuclear weapon themes. Very important to make nice. Tim happy. Happy holidays. Happy holidays for Tim. <laughs> Thank you. Well, James, uh, wonderful to have you on the podcast. I know you're going to be a good podcaster when you already recommend the next thing that, you know, hey, wink, wink, I should come back on. Uh, you did a great job. We'd <laughs> love to have you back. Um, so thanks for that. And thanks for, for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. This is a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Gabe, always good to see you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me, Tim. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, uh, Star Trek or otherwise, uh, you want, or hey, you know what, you want to tell us what we got wrong. Uh, maybe I accidentally said Star Wars instead of Star Trek, and you want to at me on that. There's a couple ways you can do that. Uh, you can call me on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. You can go to our website and put a comment on that, SupercriticalPodcast.com, or you can send me a nasty email, SupercriticalPodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And James Sheehan. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.